The Shmuz is the Ilu Nishmas, my father, Nechemi Moshe ben Shalom. Sefer Dvarim is a open critique of the Klaishol. Most of Sefer Dvarim occurs during the last 30 days of Moshe Benu's life. And much of it goes through step by step everything that the Klai Yisrael did wrong during the 40 years. This is the last opportunity that Moshe Benu had. He tried to hold back, <coughs> giving tochacha until now. But this is the last chance. So in fact, Sefer Dvarim is filled with, replete with the things that the Klai Yisrael did wrong. Interestingly, one of the things that Moshe Benu blames the Klai Yisrael for is for stopping short. At Mamad Har Sinai, Hashem spoke the first two dibras. Hashem said, Hashem Hashem said, And then you said, Stop. You said to Hashem, No more. Speak through Moshe Rabbeinu. Let Moshe Rabbeinu hear the words. The reason why the Klai Yisrael said, Stop, Chazal tell us, because effectively they died. Basically, Hashem revealed Himself and at a certain point, the Jews there were so, I guess you'd say, almost system overload. They just became so, <clears throat> they physically died. Hashem had to bring them back to life. That was the first Dibra, the second one. And at that point, they said to Moshe Benu, enough. We can't handle it anymore. Let Hashem speak to you. You'll speak to us. And now some 40 years later, Moshe Benu has a complaint. Why did you stop? Why did you stop? You weakened me, says Moshe Rabbeinu, and he says these words. Says Rashi, I see that you didn't have fear of Hashem to become close to me'ava. Meaning you should have direct, desired to be so close to Hashem that you would have wanted to hear it directly. You shouldn't have wanted me to be in the middle. But you didn't have enough charada, you didn't have enough fear of Hashem, you didn't have enough awe, and because of that you didn't have enough love, and because you didn't have enough love of Hashem, you stop short. And that's how Rashi explains Moshe Benu's taina against the Klai Yisrael. <clears throat> now, my wife likes to travel. I, um, the past 10 years, maybe 15 years, I find it very, very rough. Airports are not what I call humane places. Airplanes, for sure, are not places any longer for human beings. And I say to my wife on a regular basis, you want to see some place, go to the IMAX. And it is true. I was in South Africa, and I went to Kroger National Park. I didn't see a single lion. I took my children to the African Serengeti IMAX, six feet tall. The surround sound 20,000-watt system, when the lions roared, my seats were shaking. You could see the lion up close, you will never, ever see anything with the same clarity as you will in an IMAX. And Hollywood has gotten very, very good at adding things, the smoke, the mirrors, and really creating the sensation, the feeling of the experience. But you have to understand that Mamad Harsinai was not Hollywood. Mamad Harsinai was not an opportunity to showcase Ramban explains to us that Hashem was, for one time in history, revealing himself to the Jewish nation. 
And every person there was supposed to experience Hashem as much as they could so that they should forever learn to fear Hashem. And if you study the Pesukim, it was a very, very awe-inspiring moment. When the clients will get there, the entire mountain <clears throat> is aflame. And the mountain itself begins shaking. It was so frightening, and the clients didn't want to go forward. Moshe Menu leads them forward. And you read through the Pesukim, level by level, you see it's an incredible, incredible experience. So I understand why there was tremendous fear. And I understand why the Jewish nation said, we don't want to go further. Hashem said to Dibris, it's too much. What I don't understand is Rashi's expression. Rashi says that Moshe was saying to them, you didn't have enough fear of Hashem to love Hashem, and that's what stopped you. Now, fear of Hashem and love of Hashem are very different, almost contradictory. Moshe Ben is saying, you weren't haredim enough, you weren't filled with fear enough to love Hashem. Now, if you had more fear of Hashem, I understand why you'd step back even further. If you had more love of Hashem, I understand why you'd want to go further. You'd want to hear more from Hashem. But I don't understand how Moshe Ben says, had you had more fear of Hashem, you would have loved Hashem more, and then you wouldn't have asked me to be the intermediary. You would want to receive it directly from Hashem. Those two concepts seem very contradictory, and it sounds very difficult to understand this Rashi. And I'd like to see if we could better understand this Rashi and understand what, in fact, this Chazal shares with us. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. We live very far from the land. I buy my bread in a bakery. I eat food from boxes. And most of us have very little connection to food actually growing. But if you study the complex food chain, you recognize that there's tremendous, tremendous delicate balances an entire world, an entire ecosystem of a globe, all interrelated, all dependent one on the other. As an example of how fragile the system is, there's now something called the honeybee hive collapse. They don't know why, but honeybees, instead of flying back to the hive, get lost, and they don't make it back. And people, wise people, knowledgeable people, are very concerned. Why? Because the bee, and particularly the honeybee, are responsible for one-third of the world's crop production. And I mean everything from apricots to prunes to uh, the list of blueberries, cantaloupes, cherries, cranberries, cucumbers, sunflowers, watermelon. All of them are dependent on bees' pollination. But it's not just that. It's cotton. The dairy industry would be devastated if bees actually would cease to exist you wouldn't have alfalfa. You wouldn't have the <clears throat> various haze that the cows need. People predict either a worldwide fine <clears throat> economic and slash food collapse or at least a major, major difference because, again, the bee is a major contributor to pollinization. Now, let's understand this. What does the bee do? The bee goes from flower to flower. The bee's goal is to seek nectar, to seek pollen, to feed the larvae, to feed the new babies. It'll go from flower to flower. <clears throat> when the bee gets into the nectar of one flower, it has a pollen basket on its leg. The pollen falls into its basket. It falls onto the hairy part of the bee. Then the bee <clears throat> will go from this flower to the next one. Inadvertently, it doesn't intend to, but some of the, f- some of the pollen will fall off. And there's cross-pollinization from the male part of this <clears throat> flower to the female part of that flower. And all of the fruits, vegetables, and that the world depend on are largely pollinated through this process. 
Now, what's interesting is that if you actually look at how a beehive functions and you actually study what's going on, it's a phenomenally complex system. There are bees who go out and seek the honey and nectar. Then there are bees who go out and seek the wax that are needed because the next generation are born as as little eggs that grow in these little wax cups. There are bees that have to hunt for tar, which is used to coat the outside of the hive. Each bee has a very unique function. Each bee has a different job. And there are some bees whose sole job it is to nurse, to give the larva to eat. Some bees are responsible for cleaning. The hive itself is a collection. You know, it's a small area. There'll be between 20,000 and 60,000 bees in this area, and the heat has to be just the right temperature. There'll be entire hundreds and hundreds of bees whose job it is to either cool it or heat it, depending on the season. There'll be bees whose responsibility is to clean the area. But what's amazing is that when the bees go out, they communicate very clearly one with the other. There are scout bees that go out and find various flowers, and when they come back, they communicate to the other workers what they found. It's a complex bee dance. I don't understand it, but it's a figure eight, and somehow through that they communicate the distance, how good a crop it is, how many workers should go out there. The bees communicate. They know what to do. They bring back the pollen to the nest. Now, for the record, it requires to make one pound of honey. It requires about 300,000 miles of flight because a single bee in its lifetime will produce about a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. But they travel from flower to flower, flower to flower, and if you understand how incredibly important they are in China, where bees aren't really as populous and having great trouble, they pay people. And they figure out that it costs about $3,500 per acre to pollinate by hand that area. One beehive takes care of it, And again, the world population, the world food, and certainly the economy is, in fact, thriving largely in part because of the bee. But let's do one more step to understand this. The queen bee is the only bee in the hive that lays eggs. A queen bee will lay about 1,500 eggs a day. Each egg is deposited into a small wax cup. Another worker will come and then cover up the cup. That, because there's a little bit of food in the egg, the egg starts to begin forming, and out comes the larva. <clears throat> Once the larva comes out, a nurse bee is immediately there to feed that larva. It begins growing a little bit more. <clears throat> Within a little bit of time, it becomes mature enough to take on its own role. Now, here's where things get very interesting. By day three, that new bee has its first job. It begins <clears throat> within its body. There are created these various glands that will now secrete honey. It is attracted to stand by the front of the hive. The workers who come back with the pollen and nectar, it stands, it receives from them the pollen nectar, it ingests it. In its body, it processes it, adds some enzymes, immediately goes back to the unborn larva when one of them begins popping up. This bee, who is now three days old, is now the nurse bee, and it'll feed that newborn baby bee until it grows a little bit more. This bee will remain in that nurse mode for about seven days. By about day 12, approximately, its glands that secreted honey now dry up, and now it begins secreting wax. It'll begin going from cell to cell, putting the wax. It'll go to the 
front of the hive to get wax from other bees that are bringing it in. It'll create those little cups, those hex- hexagon-shaped cups. It'll arrange it. They know how to arrange it in what pattern and what way, row after row after row, each attach. And it will remain at that job for about another 10 days. By day 23, it now becomes selected for its job. Now, there are no elves who tell it, go to this college, go to this university. There's no training for its job. But at day 23, it becomes specialized for its particular function. Some will become those bees that are responsible to take care of the queen. The queen has no ability to feed itself. The queen has no ability to groom itself. All day long, their workers are feeded and groom it. There are some bees, again, whose job it is to clean out the cups and clean out the hive. Some bees become specialized for that. Some bees become specialized to do the cooling or the heating. Some bees become the specialized guards to protect the hive itself. Most of the bees, their specialization is to go out and forage. Once that happens, it goes out. And from day 23, it begins going out. Somehow it knows to read the bee dance. Somehow it knows to interpret that language. It knows how to find the pollen, knows how to find the nectar, knows how to bring it back, knows how to give it over to the other nurse bees. And it lasts from day 23 till day 42 when it promptly dies. The lifespan of a honeybee is 42 days. And that's it. And no more. And if you study the incredible diversity of roles and incredible intricate harmonious system, they don't fight, they don't debate, there's no pecking order. Each one somehow does this job, does that job. There's one bee whose job it is to be the undertaker, meaning when a bee dies, it's in the hive. Other bees pass it by, it's not their job to remove it. If that dead bee would remain there, it would start creating a stench, it would attract predators, the hive would be in danger. There are special undertaker bees whose job it is to remove, all they do is go from point to point, excuse me, removing the dead bodies, take it about 400 feet from the hive, deposit it, come back. And what's astonishing is no one's teaching them their role. No one's telling them what to do. If the bee, queen bee dies, somehow it is that the worker bees know to take royal honey, feed it to an unborn larva, and that unborn larva will be groomed to be the next queen bee, and the hives continue, life goes on. And when you study the vastness and complexity of this world, when you realize that there are 10 million species of living creatures, each with its own food source, each dramatically dependent one on the other, when you see how intertwined each is, and when you see how delicate the balance is and everything in order everything properly arranged, you see your creator because you understand that things don't just happen. They don't just occur. No man woke up in the morning and suddenly discovered a factory. Ah, my factory produces widgets all day long and I make money from it. And when you study even a tiny little fraction of the complexity of this world, you see an amazing, amazing amount of wisdom. However, the Rambam in Hilchas Yisori Torah tells us that is a wonderful way to come to understand Hashem. That's a wonderful way to come to recognize Hashem's greatness, but that's but a tip of the iceberg. He says whatever you'll see on the physical plane has opposite it something on the spiritual plane. As Chazal tells us, not a blade of grass grows that doesn't have a malach telling it to grow. Every rock Every particle of physicality 
<coughs> has a malach, it's a, <coughs> excuse me, an independent, what's, what the Rambam calls a das nifrod. It's a das <coughs> separate from Hashem. And every physical entity <coughs> has a malach, has some type of spiritual force that's responsible for its existence, that's responsible for it to do what it does. If you were to see a beehive from the spiritual dimension, you'd see a very, very busy world. If you were to study a forest, you would see a very, very busy world. And I guess it's a good thing that malachim don't take up space because otherwise it would be a very crowded world. Because every physical element <clears throat> has more than one spiritual component behind it, each with the directive, each with the <clears throat> goal of keeping it in existence, having it do what it should do. And Hashem behind every spiritual entity, keeping it in existence, keeping it there. Now we, <clears throat> from a Western thought system, consider ourselves very sophisticated. We consider ourselves scientists, ones who are worldly. Would you like to know the level of our knowledge? I'll give you a muscle. <clears throat> me. Imagine you go to the African Congo, and you find a very, very primitive tribe. And you take a tribesman, put him on a plane, and bring him back. And as you're over Kennedy, you're starting to land, and you point out the Van Wick. And he sees cars, hundreds of them, thousands of them, little tiny cars. And he says, wow, and those little things, they drive themselves. <laughs> That's amazing. He said, no, they don't drive themselves. They're people. Men drive. Men are behind the steam. What do you mean, men? They're tiny little things. How can it, it be? He, in his primitive understanding, doesn't understand that because he's so high up, he sees them as very small and doesn't recognize that there's a human being driving each vehicle. As he comes closer and closer, he may come to realize it. That is Western's thoughts understanding. We see a vast world, such a complex world, and we're amazed by it. When you open a science textbook and you see a thousand pages that describe one cell, and when you recognize that a cell in the human body is far more complex than New York City is, and when you realize that the human body is made of trillions of cells, you see a very, very complex physical world. But that's the tip of the iceberg. When you understand that behind every physical entity, thank you, behind every physical existence is a spiritual component that's bigger, larger, wiser, that guides it, that tells it what to do, that shapes it, that molds it, you begin to get a different understanding of the world. And the Rambam in Hilchas Yisodi Torah says, this is the way to come to love Hashem. Study the physical world, but study the spiritual world as well. Pay attention to davening. From Baruch Hu till Shema, you'll read about huge, huge groups of malachim who praise Hashem, who sing to Hashem. And you have to tune your mind to this. And I think we have a problem doing that. We're all Maminim, we all believe, but it's sort of like difficult for me to tap into that world. I hear the Rambam, I hear the physical world, I study biology, I get it, I see Hashem. But the spiritual world, it's, I don't know, I don't really feel it. I don't relate to it. And I think we make a fundamental mistake. And I'll explain to you what I think that mistake is. Oliver Sacks is a neurologist, was a neurologist, very famous man, a very well-studied man, a very, he's a prolific author. 
In any case, he <clears throat> dealt with many, many different types of brain injuries, and he wrote <clears throat> quite a number of books. And in one of these books, he describes <clears throat> that he dealt with a patient who was blind. Now, typically, if a person loses their sight, they retain their visual memory, meaning to say, I'm not able to see now, but all of the memories <clears throat> are still there. What I saw, <clears throat> what people look like. In fact, you could take a person who became blind and ask him to describe scenes. He could tell you, that was the block I walked down as a kid. Oh, yeah, on the left side is the bakery. On the right side, oh, yeah, that's the hardware store. Meaning your visual memory is still intact. The images are still there. Alva Sachs describes that he had a patient who had a stroke, and the visual cortex was particularly struck, had a traumatic loss of blood. This man didn't just become blind. He lost all visual memory. He could not remember a single picture, not a single image. Nothing was there, completely wiped out. But it wasn't just that he lost his visual memory. He lost the memory of what sight was. When Dr. Sachs said to him, could you imagine something being well lit? He didn't know what he was talking about. What do you mean lit? Dark, light. He didn't understand vision. It had been completely eliminated from him, completely blocked to the extent that it no longer existed. He no longer recognized it, couldn't relate to it. And I think when we talk about ruchnius, when we talk about spirituality, <clears throat> we talk about malachim, we think of ourselves like that man. Like, I, I believe it, I'm a mamin, but I ain't never seen it. I have a blank. When it comes to my visual memory, I don't see malachim. I don't see angels. I don't see it. I don't recognize it. I'm a man who's never seen it. I don't have the capacity to see it, and I can't relate to it. And if you think in that way, you're going to find a lot of concepts in our religion difficult, not the least of which is what happens after you die. I mean, this part is put in the ground. So that means I don't see, I don't hear, I don't taste. Oh, what do you mean I exist? What do you mean I remember? What do you mean for eternity I am what I shape myself into, the conscious thinking me, I'm just like the body, right? And I'm dead, right? Wrong. But as long as you think in very physical terms, and as long as you think of yourself as that man who has no visual memory, you're going to find it very difficult to relate to spirituality. You're going to find it very difficult to relate to yourself. And I believe that this is so false that that image is completely the wrong understanding. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Ramchal explains to us that there are two distinct parts of the neshama. What we normally discuss, and certainly if you listen to the shmuz, we spend a lot of time discussing the conscious part of the neshama. That's I. I have two different parts to me, nefesh bahami and nefesh sikhli. Nefesh bahami, the animal soul, is all of the drives and instincts that you'll find in the animal world. Into that part, Hashem implanted all of the desires, needs, and appetites to keep the human being alive. I have another part of me, the seichel. The seichel has a number of parts to it. it. There's the karen, there's memory, there's seichel, there's intellect, and there's dimyon, imagination, and there's rotzon. But it explains the Ramchal that all of that is within the lower soul of me. Besides for that, I have what he calls a neshama elyona, another total part of my neshama, which has a very distinct role, which I'm not conscious of, I'm not typically alert to it, but it's there and has a particular role. 
And in fact, he explains that there are various parts to it. <clears throat> there's the nefesh, there's the ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida. What happens when you go to sleep at night and you dream? You ever wonder? Vivid images, vivid scenes. Now typically, <clears throat> we don't remember them, but if you wake up shortly after you've had a REM part of your sleep, the deep sleep, if you wake up shortly afterwards, likely you'll remember the dream. All of us dream every night these wild, fanciful things. What is a dream? So Ramchal explains that Hashem created two time periods, a time of work and a time of rest. During the time of rest, the body is supposed to rest and the neshama is supposed to rest as well. During that time period, there's only one part that functions, and that's the dimyon. Dimyon is the imagination, and that part functions when I'm asleep. But the neshama elyona, the top part of my neshama, basically leaves. The only part that remains of it is the nefesh, the ruach, the yechida. The other parts go up to shemayim. And he explains that that part of me that goes up to shemayim gets to sometimes discuss things with different celestial beings, sometimes with what he calls pekidei teva, forces that control nature. If you've ever had a dream that was vivid and real and happened many times... I'll take it very seriously. Why? Because it's true that there will be distortions. But it could also be that Hashem is sending you a message. Sometimes it is that Hashem will allow a neshama to leave, will have a upper world force speak to that part of the neshama, and that part comes back to the body. Now the problem is that during my sleeping state, everything is asleep except for dimyon. So everything that my upper neshama is going to translate to me has to be brought through the dimyon, and therefore it's going to be fanciful, it's going to be imaginative, it'll never be exact, never be accurate, but if you have a dream repeatedly, time after time, and it's either good or bad, Chazal tell us to take it seriously, because it could well be that you're allowed to see things. Now, we don't take dreams that, that seriously, but it is a function of my existence. We have something called Neshama Yaseira. On Shabbos, a Neshama Yaseira comes in, and it leaves by Motzei Shabbos. That's why we smell besamim to give ourselves a lift because we're a little bit down. Ladies and gentlemen, have you ever felt your neshama yisera? Whoa! My neshama yisera has taken over me. I'm now so much closer to Hashem. I'm now dancing with the malachim. <clears throat> if that's your experience, we have to um, <clears throat> check you out a little bit. But uh, you will not experience your neshama yisera. So what's going on? So the Ramchal explains what's going on is that Hashem created the human being with Bechira. Two parts of my neshama, each with its job. The conscious eye has the job of making decisions, running my life. Above me, I have another part of my neshama that says, let's go, this is what you should be doing, and this is how you should act. That part of my neshama knows intuitively, instinctively, everything that I should be doing, and it guides me. It has no interest in anything in this world, has no pleasure from this world, and all day long it says to me, come on, let's go. Let's learn. Let's dive and help people out. Come on, do chesed. Come on, let's go. Sometimes we listen to that voice. Sometimes we ignore it, but it's always there. On Shabbos, it's a little bit stronger. There's a neshama yaseira. There's another part added and if you're attuned to it, you may hear a little bit more pulling, a little bit more sort of, what am I talking about, huh? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I don't either. So good, here we go. I'll make it very simple. <clears throat> Jeff Bezos <clears throat> and Bill Gates are currently engaged in a war. A war. 
a very, very vicious, serious war. The war is about who's going to be the richest man in the world. And it's pretty tight. Back and forth, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, back and forth, back and forth. Okay, now here's really the point. Jeff Bezos recently hit the $90 billion mark. Then Bill Gates beat him, back and forth, back and forth. Now, folks, $90 billion is a lot of money. Would you like to know how much money $90 billion is? I'll make it very, very simple. Let's imagine that I had a fortune of money, and I was setting a budget for myself. So I'll be a little bit generous. I'm going to live on $10,000 a day. Most of us could probably manage to get by on $10,000 a day, right? First day, you take care of your mortgage and your kids' tuition. <clears throat> Second day, you take care of all your household expenses. Third day, not only buy yourself a... Third day, fourth day, buy yourself a new car, maybe a couple of suits. So you want a bunch of them? Okay, you want 100 of them? Fine. Done. You know, not a big deal. Um, you want, what would you like, a va- vacation home? Okay, we'll take next month. We'll buy you a beautiful vacation home. What else would you like? Most of us can manage to eat by on $10,000 a day. $10,000 a day times 365 days is $3.65 million. To spend a billion dollars, billion is a thousand million, <clears throat> to spend a billion dollars at that rate would take about 300 years. Meaning if you spend $10,000 a day, you won't spend a billion dollars in your lifetime. If you spent $100,000 a day, it would take you 30 years to spend a billion dollars. So ladies and gentlemen, here's a question. If you're worth $87 billion, does it make a difference? 88, 80, 91, whoa, now I'm rich. In your lifetime, in your children, in your great-grandchildren's lifetime, you couldn't begin to spend that much money. So why is Jeff Bezos so driven? And the Ochel Siddiquim explains, don't you understand? You're seeing a manifestation of a neshama. When man is not satisfied, when he can't be satisfied and needs more, <clears throat> that's a neshama speaking. Sometimes that neshama is properly driven and wants to accomplish great things, sometimes foolish things, but the person who can never be satisfied, which is the human being, when he gets the corner office, he needs the next raise. When he publishes one book, he needs another one. When he becomes the mayor of the city, he needs to be the governor. The human being is never satisfied and always needs to climb the ladder. Make no mistake, the Rechazit says, that's your neshama. Your neshama that's yearning for greatness. Your neshama that's yearning for more. Unfortunately, the human typically sublimates that into foolish things like money and positions and honor. But that's the part of me that's driving me for greatness, driving me all the time. And a Jew has an even more unique neshama, and all you have to do is carefully listen. Carefully listen because that neshama is there all day telling you, asking you, begging you to do what's right, begging you to do what's appropriate. Would you like a muscle to define us, to understand us? The ocean is a very deep place. If you think of the ocean properly, it's really mountains and valleys. Some 15,000 feet, miles and miles deep. There are some that are so deep it's almost unimaginable. At 10,000 feet, light no longer penetrates. Light can penetrate the first few hundred, maybe first thousand or two feet, but after a while, it's so thick light no longer penetrates, and by about 10,000 feet, it's complete blackness. Now imagine that Hashem were to create a large fish. 
And this large fish lives at 10,000 feet. Its sight is extremely limited because it's basically black. Its sense of hearing is also limited. Water is far thicker than air. doesn't carry sound very well. So anything it hears is doesn't hear crisp, clear sound. Imagine Hashem were to take a person, a human being, conscious, thinking human being like you and I, and put him into this fish at 10,000 feet. Full acuity, full mental ability, fully like you and I, but at 10,000 feet. And this fish opens his eyes, and there he is. And you say to this fish, I want you to imagine what it's like living on the land. I want you to imagine what it's like looking out and seeing miles and miles of clear horizon, seeing a tree, seeing an ocean, seeing birds flying two miles away. I want you to envision that. Now, the fish is going to have a little bit of difficulty. The fish sometimes has been at 8,000 feet, sees a little bit of light. The fish has eyes, maybe even at 7,000 feet, so he understands vision, but he's going to have a difficult time relating to that. And I believe that's a perfect muscle. Do you understand what we're put into this planet to do? I have an neshama that's guiding me, that's leading me. If I would just listen to that neshama, like that fish at 10,000 feet, the neshama would pull me up a little bit, pull me up a little bit more, pull me up, I'd make it to 8,000 feet, then to 7,000, then to 5,000, then to 500, maybe 200 feet, and I'd be swimming in a lit pool with tremendous vision, with tremendous understanding. I would see things with absolute clarity. The problem that we have is we're back down on the bottom. Every once in a while we get closer up. <clears throat> Every once in a while, maybe it'll be the Rosh Hashanah, maybe it'll be the Shabbos. When you see something, you feel something, you understand it, but then we come back down. The Ramchal explains that Nevuah <clears throat> is a very different experience. A Novi is a person who worked on himself. A Novi is a person who perfected himself. He got right up into the 200, 100-foot range, and that's where he exists, and that's where he lives. But he still cannot see anything beyond the water. He's a fish-living creature. Navua is a state of tardema. Explains in Ramchal, when a Novi has a vision from Hashem, the Novi goes into a state of stupor, of sleep, because you see, he's still a fish-dwelling person. He still has hergish, he still has feelings, he still has things that block. And Hashem is now taking him above to the air to see brilliantly, to see with absolute clarity, and his senses have to be dulled. It has to be an out-of-body experience, and typically, the Rambam explains, when a Novi is having a Navua, his body starts trembling, he starts shaking, his chush, his sensations, and his hergish, his feelings have to be almost, he has to be separated from them. So it becomes almost, a, I don't know if it's an epileptic fit, but it's strange. He begins shaking and trembling, and he's unconscious. In that state, he sees with absolute clarity. He understands things. He knows that it's Hashem speaking to him, or that it's a Novi, or it's a Malach that Hashem sent to him. He knows that, but he's not in his regular senses. And that's a Novi. There was only one human being who was different than that, and that's Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, when he went up for the third time to Ar Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights without food, without drinking, he was a different sug, a different sort of person. He was no longer in the water. He now lived above. He was now able to speak to Hashem, upon him, directly to Hashem in his full conscious alert mind. There was no seichel, no hergish, 
no sensations, no feelings that were blocking it. He was able to speak to Hashem fully conscious, fully alert, because he had so mastered physicality, it no longer blocked him, no longer interrupted. He was able to speak to Hashem right there. Would you like to know the answer to this Rashi? The Medrash Zohar, the Gemara tells us that the Klai Yisrael, when they were at that moment of Kabbalah Satora, all reached Nevoah. But it wasn't prophecy of a regular prophet. The prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu. This was the one time in history that Hashem was revealing Himself to His nation and every human being there came out of the water and saw with absolute clarity. And you know what happens when a human being sees things clearly? He sees Hashem everywhere. He sees Hashem keeping everything in existence. He understands the physical is all in existence because of Hashem. He understands the spiritual is kept in existence by Hashem. He sees the glory of Hashem and he's overwhelmed with a sense of awe, trepidation, the glory of Hashem. But at the same moment that he's overawed by that sense, there's a deep love, the majesty, the beauty of Hashem, and he's drawn to Hashem, and he wants to become closer. And the more that he loves Hashem in that state, and the more that he's able to perceive Hashem, the more awe that he feels, because he's able to perceive Hashem greater, he's perceives a greater appreciation of the magnitude, the greatness of Hashem, and therefore it brings him to a greater sense of love. If I could strip myself of physicality, I'd be drawn like a piece of iron to an electromagnet. That's how the Sharm describes all of our votes Hashem. Everything we do, all of the mitzvahs, are to strip this heavy, heavy cloak of physicality so that my neshama will be drawn, pulled as it naturally should be, like a piece of iron to an electromagnet just drawn. What Moshe Reina said to the Klai Yisrael is you stopped short. Right when you were beginning to perceive Hashem, when you had that full sense of awe, you were charedim, you were filled with trembling and trepidation because you perceived Hashem, that brought you to a love of Hashem. Had you allowed that fear of Hashem, the awe of Hashem to come to a greater extent, you would have loved Hashem more and you never would have agreed to go down from that level. You never would have asked me to intercede. You would have felt such an attraction to Hashem that you would have remained there and you would have reached new levels of awe, new levels of love. You would have been on a different level. And I think that this Rashi reveals to us a fundamental concept. When people talk about Yiras Hashem, oh, I don't want to think about that scary. There is a concept called Yiras Onish, like Hashem has a big stick and he's going to hit me. That's not Yiras Shemayim. Yiras Hashem is not fear of God. Yira means awe. When I appreciate the glory of Hashem, when I recognize Hashem as the creator of everything that my eye sees, when I recognize the greatness, goodness of Hashem, there's a sense of awe. That sense of awe is real, and that sense of awe brings me to Ambas Hashem instantly, directly. Because the more I see the greatness of Hashem, the more I'm drawn to Hashem, the more I love Hashem. And those two work in tandem. And I think that's exactly what Rashi is saying. You didn't feel enough awe of Hashem, and therefore you didn't feel the love. Had you felt more awe, you would have felt more love. Then you would have appreciated Hashem more. The awe would have brought to more love. You would have reached a different mandrego. And while this is theoretically interesting, I think it has some real practical applications to us. And I'll share with you what they are. It's really two different areas. One goes something like this. I began learning Musr when I was about 19, first year at Medrash, and I remember as a young idealistic kid having dreams, goals. 
I'm going to work on jealousy. <clears throat> There's not going to be sin in my heart. Abba Yisrael, Abba Hashem. I had a whole plan, and I was working, and I spent many years working on different issues, Bittachon and Amuna, and I had grand plans. I now find myself <clears throat> more than 30 years later with an interesting reality. I could be dominating Hashemana Esrei and literally see myself speaking to Hashem right there. A thought enters my mind. I'm gone. I only wake up minutes later when I take three steps back. Ooh, how did I get here? I'll work on me talking. I see Hashem totally here. Hashem controls everything. Hashem runs everything. And then a little dog chases me. Ah! And sometimes I look at myself and go, am I normal? What's going on? What's with you? Did your mother drop you on your head as a kid? What, what is your problem? Do you know I could work on Avish Yisrael and you say one line to insult me? And I, ooh, what happened? Where, 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 am I regular? So the first episode to take from this Rashi is yes, good morning America. <laughs> Meaning to say there are two parts to me. There's an up and a shama that only wants to do what's right and what's good. But I live in this conscious world, and like that fish at whether 10,000 feet or 7,000 feet, wherever it is, I am deeply submerged. And as a result, working on things takes a lot, a lot of effort. And if I work on Amuna and I work on seeing Hashem, I'll get it 20%, 25%. But that's it. Now, that doesn't mean quit, because that 25% is huge, and it can change the trajectory of your life. But you have to remain realistic. And you have to understand the extent of your growth. You have to understand where you're going to end up. And we're like that fish going from 10,000 to 9,000, sometimes to 8, sometimes to 7. And maybe, maybe you'll make it to 5,000 feet. But at the end of the day, it's still going to be mighty murky. And you're going to be submerged. And you're going to be living with doubts, with issues, with things constantly. And growth is just an issue of getting a little bit higher, a little bit higher, recognizing that you're going to end up back there. And that's an important lesson. But that's not really the lesson that I want to focus on from this Rashi. The lesson that I'd like to focus on <clears throat> is a little bit different. My mother <clears throat> became an orphan as a... Actually, she lost her mother when she was about six years old. And effectively, she was raised by two aunts. And these two aunts remained spinsters. And one aunt <clears throat> died before I was born. The other aunt I knew very well, Aunt Lil. And little, I already, she was already living in our house already. She was still working. And she was, because she was a single woman, but she was very bright, she became very, very successful. And at a time when women didn't really occupy positions of great importance in the corporate world, she was the head bookkeeper for Hemsley Spear. She was on top of 200 women who, the bookkeeping department, this was a large real estate firm in, in New York, one of the largest in America, and she was the head bookkeeper, effectively what would be today the controller of a large real estate corporation. And Aunt Lil used to describe the work. The girls would write down in ledgers, pencil, ledgers, write down, rents collected, paid, and they'd go through the process. At the end of the month, there was reconciliation, but to actually figure out profit and loss took months and at the end of the year, they reconciled all the accounts, all the accounts, and with the 200 women all gathered, they would somehow figure out, put together an income statement, profit and loss, and figure out how the company did. Okay. Today, life is a little bit different. If you own a company, you purchase yourself a copy of QuickBooks, or do QuickBooks online, enter some starting balances, put in your inventory, and instantly, when you make a sale, you know how much money you made and how much money you lost. Instantly, you'll know your month's profit Instantly, you know your year's profit. As soon as you enter the sale, 
right away it tells you the balance, <clears throat> right away it posts it, instantly you know exactly how you did that day, that month, that year in history. Okay. We know that we are going to be omed bedin. There are many times that we stand in din. One is on Rosh Hashanah. Hashem judges every human being. When we leave this earth, we're going to be judged. And during the time of Mashiach, we're going to be judged again. And Chazal are very clear that it's a very complex judgment system. There are malachim who are kategorim. There are malachim who are the prosecuting attorneys. And each brings their claim. Each brings the things I've done wrong. And there are senegorim. There are those who defend me defense lawyers. Each one brings its claim. And there is chusim, there are issues. It's a very complex, very intricate judgment. Okay, here's my question. I have to add up the books. But the judge here is Hashem. Hashem is at least as good as QuickBooks. Hashem knows exactly where I'm holding, when I'm holding. Hashem's yidiyah, Hashem's knowledge is complete and total. Hashem doesn't need all the, bring in the defense attorney, bring in, oh no, one more, one more, added up, oh, get a schluss, get a Hashem doesn't need the whole tabulation. This is not back in the 70s when you need 200 bookkeepers. Hashem knows exactly where I'm holding as I'm holding. So if you tell me that Hashem wants to set one day as the judgment day, we'll call it Rosh Hashanah. Hashem doesn't need all those malachim piling in one after another for the good, for the bad, and schusim and way and measure. The whole court scene doesn't need to be there. And the Ramchal explains that there's a very particular reason for it. The reason why Hashem does it is not because Hashem doesn't know. The reason that Hashem does it is because that's the way Hashem runs the world. And would you like to know why it is that Rosh Hashanah is a very complex judgment system? It's so that you and I can relate to it, so that you and I can feel it. Because while my conscious mind may be right here in shul, hopefully not thinking about shalant or kishka that I'm going to be eating, hopefully thinking about the davening, but my unconscious neshama is there. As a matter of fact, if you're not sure that I'm right, the Berhitev brings down their result, and I found this year after year. Some years I'm able to prepare very well for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Some years, whatever the reason, I'm busy not. Invariably, there's going to be a certain point during the davening where you feel a need to cry. The Berhetev brings down, you can open the Mishaburu, you'll find it inside, <clears throat> the name of the Rizal. When you feel that, that's because you, your neshama, that part of you up in Shemayim is there being judged and you see the judgment. You see the kategorin, and you see the prosecuting Angels come in, you see the defense attorneys, you hear the schusim, and you're filled with fear, you're filled with a pachad. And when you, in your conscious mind, feel a need to cry, it's because you, as a totality, are aware of it. Because while it's true that we're like that fish at 7,000, 6,000 feet, there's a part of us that's allowed to see things above, and that part communicates to me, and I have an etzah. If you feel that happening, go with it, and let it pull you. Let it pull you, let it drive you. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, these concepts are not foreign to us. It's a part of me. Hashem programmed me to grow. Hashem created me to become close to Him. And Hashem gave me an Hashemah that's fully attuned to everything that happens in Shemayim. I'm not like Oliver Sacks' blind man who lost all visual memory. I'm aware of these things deep down. Again, because temporarily right now I'm living in a submerged sense I can't fully relate to it 
but eyes I have to see. And I understand what growing means. And I understand what feeling Hashem's presence means. Sometimes I feel it more, sometimes less. <clears throat> but I've tasted it, I've touched it. And there are times when it's much easier to feel it. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are unique days. They're not just days that were set up in the holiday to pray. Hashem infused a different level of kedusha in the day. And Hashem is far more accessible, far more available. And the Koch Ve'or points it out with one obvious point. He says, don't you realize the calendar is backwards? When you judge a human being, wouldn't it make sense to let him get rid of every Avera, get rid of his sins, clean himself up, and then judge him for the coming year? It's not the way Hashem created the calendar. First we have Rosh Hashanah. Your Hashanah is the Yom Hadin. All of the good, all of the bad, a way to measure, and my future is decided. Health, well-being, or the opposite, success or failure, every issue of my coming year is decided. Ten days later, I get a chance to do tshuva. It's backwards. Let me do tshuva first. <clears throat> Once I get cleaned up, then I should judge me because now I'm a different human being. Explains the Kofi it'll never work. It's only when you live through a Yom Adin, when you experience it, when you feel it, when you sense it in the core of your essence, that you can begin to wake up. Because we live deeply submerged. We live in a physical world that's so thick. And it's so hard to experience Hashem that year. Hashem's coming. I dip the apple in the honey. Oh yeah, I better be a new suit and a tie. Yeah, Roshana. Oh yeah, it's a Yom Adin. Yeah. And unfortunately, until it's really upon us, we don't feel it, we don't get it. But if you prepare, use your time right, on Rosh Hashanah you could experience the din and you could have a different cognition, a different level of understanding. You recognize the gravity of your actions. You recognize this opportunity called life. And in that moment you get it. Oh my goodness, Hashem gifted me with life, with opportunity. And at that moment you begin getting to work. And then you could start the tshuva process, clean it up, and Hashem writes the din on Rosh Hashanah not fully, not in indelible ink, so that you could change it. And that process happens to allow us to experience the judgment and then do tshuva. I think this Rashi shares with us a phenomenal concept. <clears throat> what Moshe Rabbeinu said to the Jewish nation was, you stopped short. But why did you stop short? You felt the awe of Hashem's presence. That should have naturally led you to love Hashem so much so that you should have never stepped down. The Chassam Sofer says you should have been drawn like a moth to the flame. Irresistible, I can't stop. Had you been more <clears throat> awake, had you been more alert, had you recognized Hashem's presence and glory to a greater extent, you would have naturally had much more love. You would never have asked me to intercede. And what that Rashi is sharing with us is that Yiras Hashem <clears throat> means awe appreciation, cutting through the cloak, the cloak of physicality, and seeing Hashem fully engaged in every process in the physical world, in the mountains, in the rains, in the rivers, in the beehive, in the apples, in everything that exists, seeing the Yad Hashem, and focusing on the spiritual part, <clears throat> focusing on the spiritual part that's far larger, far more powerful, far more potent than is the physical and all of these things allow me to experience Hashem. When I do that, as the Rambam explains in Hilchus Yisodei Torah, immediately I'm filled with a sense of awe, recognizing the greatness of my Creator, 
And then immediately it brings me to a love of Hashem. Why? Because Hashem is great. My Neshama recognizes it. When you stand at the foot of the Grand Canyon, you don't need anyone to tell you it's a magnificent sight. When you stare at a mountain range, you don't have to be educated in the beauty. You sense it, you feel it. That's the way you were created. If you experience Hashem, you sense the awe, the greatness, and you also have an incredible love for Hashem, drawn because Hashem is great. Hashem is the greatness of everything. And you're drawn like an iron after an electromagnet. And that's what Rashi is sharing with us. And again, I think that concept is very, rele- very relevant to us. <clears throat> Number one, understanding what growth is about, that I am submerged. I'm not like that man who lost all visual memory. I'm like that fish. I have sight and I've seen things. And yes, it's a stretch for me to imagine what it's like being at the surface. I'll never reach Navua. I won't be a Novi. I'll be always submerged, but I've been higher. Maybe I got to 4,000 feet. Maybe one time in my life was a tremendous man in the yeshiva, and I was steiging and steiging, and I reached 2,000 feet, and I saw, and I got it. I have those visual memories. I have that sense. Maybe I'm no longer there. Maybe I am. But one thing for sure, I understand sight, and I understand the spiritual component, and I understand what life's about. And more than anything, that's Nogaya now, because when Rosh Hashanah comes... That's what we're supposed to experience. Rosh Hashanah is supposed to be a powerful, moving two days. It's supposed to be a time of experiencing Hashem's malchus, experience Hashem as the king, as a melech, malchim, amlochim, experiencing it right there. But it requires work. And I want to close with one last observation. What, in fact, is it like when you die? What's it like? Okay, my body's been in the ground, I got that. No more movement to my arms, no more legs. But I fully alert, I fully... What, do you, what is it like? Would you like to know what it's like? Let's take that patient that Dr. Oliver Sachs interviewed. The man who lost all visual memory, lost all understanding of memory. And let's imagine that a brain surgeon figured out a way to reconnect that optic, the nerve, actually the, the center of the brain that controls sight the visual cortex. And after the surgery, suddenly the man saw every memory that was lost to him. Suddenly every memory came back to him, every vision came back in a flash, one after another, after another, after another. Wow! That's astonishing. Without his physical eyes, he might still be blind, but he sees everything there with absolute clarity, and he's overawed by that. Everything that he sees in his mind's eye, that's what it's like when I leave this earth. The body's put in the ground. But I don't go to sleep. It's not like at death, as in, rest in peace, Harvey was a good man. He's in his final resting place. When my body's put in the ground, I separate and I wake up with total, absolute acuity, totally alert. And every action I was ever involved in, every conversation, everything comes back with total clarity. Everything. But now I see it in technicolor. I don't see it in the very, very dark way that I see it now. And I see it for what it is, every challenge and every opportunity. I see Hashem right there with me as I'm walking down the street. I was so terrified by the little dog. And I see Hashem right there bringing the dog. Here, grow. Time to wake up. And I understand the magnitude of every one of those scenes because when it comes back visually, it comes back with such acuity, with such clarity. I get it. I understand it. 
And being aware of that now allows us to touch it, to feel it. Yes, I'm still submerged, but I know what sight means. I've been at different heights. I can tap into that. I can use it. May Hashem grant us the ability to put this into practice. May Hashem grant us a good givenchia. Before I end, I just want to mention two things. One is there are CDs here that are available free of charge called The Lost Art of Tshuva. It's, um, actually, it's a number of Shmuzim and the Tshuva Boot Camp on, um, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and the Tshuva Boot Camp, which goes to the whole system. Um, they're free, so you can just take it. You don't even have to worry. You know, anybody, anybody Jewish here? Yeah. All right. So um, the other thing I want to mention is um, don't go on the Internet. <clears throat> if you do, go to theshmuz.com. Uh, don't get a smartphone. It's really, really not smart. If you do, get the Shmooz app for iPhone and uh, Android, and you'll see all the Shmooz in a lot of, on Chuva, a lot of different issues, and uh, it's also free. Okay, I wish you much aslacha and a good commentary.